Well, it's good. It's great to be with you this morning. I uh, feel privileged to, to join you and look forward to time this morning seeing what God has done, right? That's why we're here. We, we're those who acknowledge the good work that God has done on our behalf. And so if you'll turn with me this morning through to the book of Ruth, if we were going to take time to read the book of Ruth, we'd, we would need 12 to 14 minutes. And so we're not going to do that today, but I'm going to reference the book a lot. And so I'd like for you to try to track with me as we go through this book, and I'd like to ask you the question, what is it that stirs your heart or your imagination with hope for the next steps in your faith journey? As we come to an end of year and you think forward toward the ways in which God wants to direct your life, what is it about God's loyal love to you? What is it about God's covenant promises to you that prompt you forward in the journey? From this wonderful book of Ruth today, I, I'm going to track a key idea with you, and I know it's complicated, but we have it on the screen. This key idea is that faith in God's loyal love prompts Godward initiative, humble submission, redemptive self-sacrifice, and hopeful hearts. So faith in God's loyal love prompts Godward initiative, humble submission, redemptive self-sacrifice, and hopeful hearts. And we're, we're going to track that as I tell you the story of the book of Ruth today, because it's such a great example of all of these characteristics in a, in a unique and wonderfully crafted story that God has provided for us in his word. And so follow along with me if you can, okay? So we're going to start in chapter one here, where the author of the book, we don't know who that is, but he describes this devastating predicament, a devastating predicament. You see, verses one to five tell us that 3,000 years ago, there was a desperate Jewish woman who was clinging to a very tentative hope. She and her husband, Elimelech, lived in Israel in a time of religious and political and geographic and social turmoil. They were people who lived before the arrival of King David who came and conquered and saved and unified the kingdom. They were those who had failed to fully cleanse their promised land from idolaters. They were those who... Uh, were promised a security by God, but they were clinging to that security as fragile and as fragmented. They, there was a frightening famine that gripped the land that was divinely providenced, right? Like all circumstances are. So this family of four left their homeland in Bethlehem during a famine. The name Bethlehem actually means house of bread, which is ironic, isn't it? They left the house of bread and they went to reside as aliens in, in a land that was not theirs, in a land that was not a land of rest. Uh, they went to reside in a pagan land called Moab. Now, the Moabites were the traditional enemies of Israel. They were those who were descendant from Lot uh, through an incestuous relationship with his own daughter. They were those who had taken up a pagan deity, a god named Chemosh. And so they worshipped this false deity. But Elimelech this man whose name means my God is king, left the safety of the king's community and went to sojourn in a pagan land that was dangerous and unknown with his family. And his wife, Naomi, whose name means pleasant or lovely, that will come back 
around on us. Her name means pleasant or lovely. She went with him with her two grown sons. And in verse 1 says, they went to sojourn in Moab. And then verse 2 says, they remained in Moab. And then verse 4 says, they lived there. And in fact, we don't see Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, blessing their decisions either, because what we see in those first five verses is first the father of the family dies, Elimelech dies there, then the two boys marry two pagan Moabite girls, and both the boys die. And they leave behind these three childless widows in a devastating predicament, a land of foreign gods outside their own land of promise that had been promised to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So who is going to show loyal love to them now? And so from that devastating predicament in verses 6 to 10, Naomi, this daughter of the covenant, she makes a desperate decision. She decides from the fields of Moab to, she heard that the Lord there in in those verses, in verse 6 and 7, that the Lord had given his people food again. And so she decides she will return to the land of covenant blessing. She instructs her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, the two daughters-in-law. She tells them, go home to your mother, because I am not in a position to care for you. In fact, at this point in time, Naomi prays God's or Yahweh's covenant blessing over them. She frees them to go home. They, she acknowledges they've dealt kindly with her family, but she can't pr pr provide for them. And this idea of hesed, this covenant love of God that she prays over them, is going to be important. And so I want to read a definition of that for you. It's The hesed is the oftentimes mentioned covenant love of God, the unfailing love of God, the loyal love of God that she prays over them. One author uh, explains that concept this way, a strong relational term that wraps up all the positive attributes of God. Love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. In short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. The character of God in Hesed love. But in the frailty of Naomi's faith at this point in time, she sends the two girls actually away from the land of God's covenant love, of his hesed love. She, we see in Naomi at this stage, this covenant daughter of, of Yahweh, we see actually a feeble initiative. We see a, a hesitant submission to Yahweh. We see her doubting the value of the circumstances of her time in Moab. We see her frustrated in heart. And so through tears and kisses and the three of them clinging to one another, Orpah and Ruth, in fact, pledged to stay with her. They pledged to go with her, and she pleads with them three times, go home to your own mother. And these forlorn girls cling to her. And this is in verse 13 there in chapter 1, you see her first mention of bitterness, which is a theme that comes back again later, that underscores her own, Naomi's own sense of frustration and hopelessness with God. She's unable to dis discern and embrace Yahweh's, God's loyal love for her. And so because she can't embrace that loyal love for herself, she can't offer that loyal love to the, these two daughters-in-law of hers, these two Moabite daughters-in-law. She, in fact, says 
that the hand of Yahweh in her circumstances has condemned her. She says that, therefore, Yahweh has condemned them. Yahweh's hand, she says, has brought bitterness on us. A very tough predicament of heart, right? And I'm sure there are circumstances in our lives where we can relate to that. So through her tears, Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, decides to go home. In fact, Naomi comments in verse 15 that she's going home to her own foreign gods, Chemosh. For a fourth time, Naomi, in verse 15, she urges Ruth as well, go back. She says, go back. And here we have this interesting predicament, this crossroads for Ruth. She, she can take the broad path of what would be practical and known and comfortable and convenient to go home to her mother, or she can take a narrow path, right? A narrow path of initiative and submission and self-sacrifice and hope. And here we have this crucial declaration, a determination from Ruth of loyal love, the, the gift of faith that is evident in her heart at this point in time, that Ruth the Moabite, this one who makes a decision for faith, for initiative, for submission, for self-sacrifice, for hope. In verse 16 and 17, you can see those and read those with me. But Ruth said, in verse 16 and 17 there, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Isn't that interesting? She says, I choose your God. I choose your land. I choose your house. I choose your people. I give my life and pledge my death for and with you. I take an oath according to the name of Yahweh, your God, to be faithful to him and to you. I resign all my other loyalties in order to journey for a lifetime of faith with Yahweh and his people. Friends, that's a commitment we've all made. Did you know that? That's the commitment we've all made. In fact, Ruth expresses a greater faith in Naomi's. In fact, Ruth expresses perhaps a greater faith in Abraham's. Abraham heard the words of God declared to him personally. Ruth is living on the basis of, of a rumor of God's faithfulness communicated through untrustworthy examples of God's covenant children. And yet she pledges her heart to Yahweh, to this God of another land, through his uh, divine words that she's heard secondhand, Ruth, the faith-filled, hopeful Moabite. And alongside her, Naomi, the doubting, cynical Israelite. And so in verse 19 there, in uh, chapter 1, they begin this seven-day journey back home from the Moabite side, the plains of Moab, back to Bethlehem. And the ironies upon ironies in God's providence, because they come back into Bethlehem, the house of bread, during a time of plenty, more than 10 years after Naomi had originally departed with her family. Naomi the Israelite and Ruth the Moabite returning empty-handed to a divinely blessed situation. Hope and abundance and providence all around them. It's an irony for their lives. 
And they walk in, and the community is bewildered by their arrival. They ask the question, can this be pleasant Naomi? Naomi feels that as a sting of bitter irony. She, she, she says, really? Pleasant? No, no, call me Mara. Call me bitter, she says. Because Shaddai, she uses that all-powerful name of God, she says, Shaddai has dealt bitterly with me. I left in hope and faith with all that I had of value. I return in futility and emptiness with nothing. She says, God himself opposes me. He has condemned me. He has sealed my fate. The all-powerful Shaddai has intentionally injured me through repeated calamities. That's not the right perspective, friends. And I know at times in our lives we've been in similar kinds of places I have. And yet in the midst of that grim situation of them returning to a land in abundance, uh, we have a divine provision, a divine provision. First there, in the beginning of chapter 2, we notice that Ruth takes the initiative to collect grain that's left over by workers, which is uh, a provision in the law of God in the, from the fields there in Israel. For the impoverished and destitute, they could follow after the workers and collect, collect grain behind them. So faith-filled Ruth now wisely initiates this sacrificial work, not for herself, but for her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's a foreigner, she's despised, she's a Moabite, she's placing herself at great risk for abuse in the process. We see that throughout the text. And yet she courageously and humbly submits herself to this God's protection, to Yahweh's protection. She, she hopes in his law and in his people. And so in verse 3 we see there that she, as she set out to glean, she, it says that she happened to come to Boaz's part of the field. Now, it's significant because Boaz is one who belongs to the same Ephrathite clan as Naomi and Elimelech. And that is important because in the Israelite communities of faith there, the clan, this clan identity, represented a really significant group of people responsible for one another. These clans enjoyed this common ownership of land that God in his goodness intended for them to keep in their families. And so they would have this person who would be called, and the Hebrew word is a goel, a kinsman redeemer, who was a clan member who was a person of status who was responsible to protect the land from being sold outside the clan. It was part of the way that God intended for his people to maintain ownership. A goel would redeem property that was once owned by clan members, but that was sold because of economic necessity to someone outside the clan. And so a kinsman redeemer did this in order to maintain this inheritance that God had promised to his people as a physical indicator of his blessing for them. And we have all kinds of surprises here in chapter 4, and we know they're not surprises because we have a third surprise here that behold, it says there in verse 4, and behold... Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, just happens to show up while Ruth is working. Unexpectedly, this wealthy, noble, Yahweh-fearing relative, God-fearer, arrives to see her, and he, he asks about her, and he's already heard about Ruth's faith, her initiative of faith. He's heard about her courage. He's heard about her request to glean in his field in loyal love to her mother-in-law. 
he's, he's heard about her sacrificial work ethic. And so in a critical moment in verse 8 there, uh, a fourth provision of God, this, this man of faith takes a step in, of faith's initiative to reward her for her godliness. He grants her special status in that community. He, he, he acts with a Godward heart. He, he determines that she must share in the privileges and protections of his hired workers. Four times here in this chapter, in chapter 2, Boaz goes out of his way to protect her, to ensure her protection among the men and women in the fields where she could be mistreated. True to faith's character, true to faith's character, Ruth herself responds with a humble heart and a hopeful heart. She's one who knows she's receiving undeserved favor. Again, friends, that's all of us. We're all in that position. She falls to the ground in submission, and so should we, right? She refers to herself using a term for the kind of servant in Israel that does not deserve covenant privileges, and neither do we. And yet she is put in a position to be incorporating, being incorporated into God's people, Yahweh's people. Because Boaz knows her reputation. He's seen her Godward initiative. He's, he's seen her humble submission. He knows of her self-sacrifice for her mother-in-law. He knows she's abandoned her own geography and family and culture and society and religious identity. She's come to live as an exile in a foreign land with a hopeful heart. And so have you. And Ruth trusts in the loyal love of this foreign God and the foreign people who belong to that God. And Boaz knows that Yahweh is trustworthy. He knows God is trustworthy. In fact, there in verse 12 in chapter 2, Boaz prays for her. He says, may Yahweh completely reward your faith. May he pay you in full for your faith. He uses that kind of language. May the loyal love of Yahweh make you whole. May May Yahweh provide his sufficient wings to cover you, to provide a secure refuge for you. Only he, Yahweh, the God of Israel, can provide loyal love and protection. Only he can be a faithful and sufficient God for those who trust him and associate with his people. And so again, in verse 13, Ruth responds respectfully. She she notes that Boaz has offered kind words to her that comfort her heart. She, she demonstrates, again, that dignity of faith, of character, of courage. And it, that, that character from Ruth draws Boaz to, to her particular predicament. Then we see there, if, you've, if you look down at verses 14 to 16, we see that Boaz continues to go out of his way to include Ruth to in fact demonstrate that he thinks much more of her than just a lowly servant. She, she now joins his dinner table, or his dining circle. She joins his personal family of close-knit reapers. He gives her food, an opportunity for greater gleaning, well beyond what the law would require of him. And Ruth now begins to experience the excess of abundance of favor based on the faith that she's demonstrating because of trusting in Yahweh. In verses 17 to 23 there, after she gleans in the field, she goes home. to. She's toiled long and hard. She's gathered, in, in fact, 
the equivalent of what is 29 pounds worth of dry beaten grain. That's, that's the equivalent of at least half a month's wages. So in one day, because of God's provision for her, she's gathered a half a month's wages. And so she goes home to Naomi, bringing the excess food from her meal and the grain. And Naomi sees the grain, and she has a few questions. This is not normal. There's something about the place where Ruth has worked that demonstrates a favor from Yahweh. And what we see in Naomi now is the pilot light of her heart reigniting. We see that God, Yahweh, begins to stir hope in her heart again. And so with excitement, Naomi confirms as Ruth talks to her that Boaz is actually their kinsman redeemer. He's this Goel. He's the one who could, if he chose, he could demonstrate redemptive self-sacrifice on their behalf. Now both Naomi and, and Ruth together begin to express hope that minimally they have provision for the harvest season, the seven to eight weeks of harvest, and potentially beyond that. And also, maybe Ruth would have opportunity to be interacting with Boaz over those weeks. And so we have that closing statement there at the end of chapter 2, that as the harvest season finishes, that Ruth still, she stays close to the young women to be protected, and she gleans until the end of harvest and that statement there that she lived with her mother-in-law because she's still in this position of not having closure to the situation that we're facing here. And again, just masterful work by the author of the book. Now, as we move on to chapter 3, we hear now a daring petition from Ruth, a faith that's, again, taking a kind of initiative, being submitted to, to God, to being a sacrificial person, being a hopeful person. At the end, as the chapter opens there in, in verses 1 to 5, Naomi gets involved, and together with Ruth, they craft this plan. It's a risky plan, but plans with God are often risky. They craft this plan because Naomi is seeing that Ruth's opportunity to be close to Boaz as the harvest is ending is also closing, and the window of opportunity is closing and so now these two women are encouraging one another's faith. Ruth the Moabite has strengthened Naomi the Israelite's faith. And they, they take initiative to sacrificially suggest that Ruth try to pursue a marriage outside of Naomi's household. And so as Naomi explains the plan to Ruth and the two of them prepare, we hear this plan. And listen what this plan requires, okay? It requires that Boaz and Ruth be alone at night, on the threshing floor, washed and anointed, well-dressed, Boaz lying down, Ruth lying down, Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet. Does that feel just slightly scandalous? <laughs> you, got, you got the idea. Yeah, there's a suggestion of potential impropriety here, just in case you missed it. And yet we see that, that there's the opportunity for both of these adults to demonstrate godly character. We see that there's this opportunity for Ruth to ask, act in godliness, to act with a Godward initiative, because she needs to clarify her heart's intentions to Boaz. And then in turn, she's going to have to, in another serious act of faith, she's going to have to trust him, because Boaz could mistreat her. And so she's putting herself in a vulnerable position, and ultimately, she's submitting her heart and her life to God, to God's law, to God's people, right? She's applying the initiative of faith 
with a sacrificial and a hopeful heart. So just imagine with me there as we see verses 6 to 13. Ruth is arriving at this threshing floor in the dark. They, don't, they didn't have street lights, right? They just had candles and other kinds of lights. Her heart's probably beating quickly. She's hiding and waiting for all the workers to leave. She's waiting in the dark for Boaz to finish his meal and go to bed. And then she stealthily creeps close to this man who's lying down and lies down close to him and uncovers his feet, okay? So in the cold of the night, Boaz realizes probably his feet are cold, right? <laughs> so, so here he is, and he turns over, and he is startled because he realizes there's a woman close by. And he, maybe he smelled her perfume, right? Maybe he saw her profile in the moonlight, I'm not sure. That's an awkward moment, okay? And so Boaz says... Who are you to her? And she responds, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, unlike earlier instances, what's interesting there in that verse is that Ruth is no longer qualifying herself as a Moabite. And not only that, but she doesn't use that same term for servant that she used before that talks about her unworthiness. No, here she uses a term for servant that is an eligible marriage partner. She's a maidservant now. Isn't that interesting? Because she's speaking out of her heart with a Godward initiative. She's trusting in the law of God and the loyal love of God demonstrated through Boaz. And she says to him there in, 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 um, in that text, she says there in verse um, 9, she says, spread your wings over your servant, your maidservant, for you are a redeemer. Now, with a hopeful heart, this is one of the strange and rare instances where Ruth is making a marriage proposal to Boaz, right? We don't have that very commonly in the Bible, but we have this, this sacrificing individual who's concerned about the well-being of her mother-in-law, the security of her mother-in-law's family, and so she's willing to put herself in a position to expose the hopefulness of her own heart, to take refuge under, ultimately under the wings of Yahweh, under the wings of God, and if Boaz, she uses Boaz the same language that he had previously used with her. So just the way Boaz said, you have taken refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Now Bo she's saying to Boaz, would you please help me to take refuge under God's wings? If Boaz wants to act in godly character, he can imitate the redemptive self-sacrifice that represents the nature of God himself. He can do that for Ruth, which no one else could do for her. And so he could demonstrate loyal love to her. And so Boaz immediately seeks to relieve the awkwardness of the situation. He's apparently a gracious man. He, he says to her, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter, he says to her. He recognizes this act of selflessness from Ruth. He recognizes her, her loyal love. He recognizes her self-sacrifice. He, he recognizes her hope. And he says there, he says, after all, Ruth has not chosen a lot of the young men who are available. She could have chosen a young man out of attraction or out of status, rich or poor, he says. No, she'd met those men working in the field. But Ruth's reputation is so well established that, in fact, her, her godliness makes it such that she's made the decision to pursue Boaz. She's so well established in the community already, in fact, that even her ethnicity won't be a problem. She is literally, and he uses a word there in verse 11, a woman of strength. 
Just so you know, that's a word used very few times in the scriptures, and it's used of the Proverbs 31 woman. So he calls Ruth a woman of noble character, a woman of strength. And he's, he's saying to her, she's an ideal woman of covenant testimony, one whose reputation would actually strengthen or enhance her husband's reputation in the faith community, even though she's a Moabite foreigner. And so we see that picture of Boaz's graciousness, and yet, and yet, we have one additional complication, okay? What we find out in verses 12 and 13 there in chapter 3 is that there's another kinsman redeemer. There's another man who exists with a prior claim to Elimelech's property. So Boaz promises Ruth there on the threshing floor that according to God who lives, he will do everything he can do. Boaz and Ruth now together humbly submitted before the authority of God. Boaz and Ruth together waiting for a response from this other kinsman redeemer. So they rise early in the morning to protect Ruth's godly reputation. Ruth returns to her mother-in-law to Naomi, gives her another very generous portion of barley. Ruth shows that to Naomi. Naomi's heart of faith, in her heart of faith, she she expresses verbally, again, her own growing, reignited hope in God's love for them. Uh, Naomi's now with Ruth, having to wait in submission, humble submission, for God to act on their behalf. Now they are two links removed, right? Now they have to wait for God to work through Boaz, to work through another kinsman redeemer to accomplish his purposes. And so God is at work in this situation. And, but Naomi begins to voice hope again, a confidence that God will move the situation forward. And so we're left at the end of chapter 3 wondering, how will God's, Yahweh's divine lot fall? What will he achieve? So which brings us to chapter 4, brings us there to a determinative purpose, a determinative purpose. How will Yahweh, God, show loyal love to Ruth and to Naomi and to Boaz and to you and to me? That same morning, or shortly thereafter, Boaz goes up to the city gate. This is the place where legal business happens. This is a picture of a, a kind of gate that's been uncovered there. And he, he knows that he needs to find the other Goel, the other kinsman redeemer, and he needs to talk in the presence of the city elders to navigate the legal dynamic of this situation. And guess what? By God's loyal love, the other kinsman redeemer just happens to walk by. And so here's the problem, okay? Here's the problem. I'm going to try to make this as simple as I can because it can be complicated. There can be words like leveret and different kinds of words that come into this. But there are three related dilemmas that Boaz is facing, okay? First... There's the redemption of the property that preserves Naomi's right to own it. But that issue is closely connected to the need for someone to marry marry Ruth to provide an heir for Naomi so that she doesn't lose the property long term, which is also connected to the practical reality of Naomi needing to be provided for in the current circumstances. So we have these three dilemmas, and it's obvious in the text that, that Boaz is aware of all of that. 
And so as he begins to talk to this other kinsman redeemer in verse 3, he first reminds him, he starts by reminding him about the property. I wonder if Boaz thought maybe just telling him about the property will be sufficient and he'll let it go and we can move on, right? But he, So he starts there in verse 3, and you can read with me, even though I know I've summarized a lot, but I'm going to read from the text here. He says here in verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And then in verse 4, Boaz charges him. He says, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is one, no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he, the other redeemer, says, I will redeem it. And we're all disappointed, right? We're all disappointed. But given Yahweh's loyal love for Ruth and for you, and given Yahweh's loyal love for Boaz and Boaz's love for Ruth and now Naomi, he recognizes that the redemption of the property, as I said, is not going to be sufficient because both Ruth and Naomi, even with the redemption of the property, they're still at risk. And so Boaz knows that in the ideal scenario, this kinsman redeemer would pay for the land, he would redeem the land, he would marry Ruth to preserve the family line, and he would also provide for Naomi as this bereaved widow. And so without the marriage to Ruth, the purchase of the property could not save their family. It wouldn't save their heritage, and it wouldn't create an opportunity for some later descendants from Ruth that we know about, right? Isn't that right? So Boaz doesn't stop there. He then puts pressure on this Goel through an ethical commitment to marry Ruth. That's it. He makes it such that that feels, and rightly so, that there's an ethical responsibility there. And he also introduces an ethnic complication in verse 5. He reminds the man that Ruth is, by the way, a Moabite. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I get the impression that Boaz wants this to be complicated, right? He wants to complicate the situation. And by God's providence, of course, by God's love, the calculation works. Given the factors of the land, the marriage to Ruth, and the support of Naomi, this other Goel can't make this sacrifice. He won't make the sacrifice. He says his own inheritance. He uses a verb that means that the decision would ruin or spoil or destroy him, his inheritance. And so in verses 6 to 8 there, in chapter 4, he says, I cannot redeem it myself, and we all rejoice, right? We all rejoice. We're all thrilled because Boaz, with legal precision then in verses 9 and 10, he goes on to clarify his responsibilities, what he would do in a tender gesture publicly, he redeems Ruth, the Moabite, the widow, to be his wife to receive an inheritance, to, to become native to the land of God, to, to fully belong to the covenant community of faith. In fact, in verses 11 and 12, the townspeople acknowledge the significance. That's a rarity in the scriptures, and these are inspired scriptures that are historically accurate. The townspeople acknowledge the significance of Ruth's incorporation, but maybe based on the reputation of Boaz in some sort of a prophetic voice they call on Yahweh's name, and they compare Ruth to the most significant, the most foundational women in their heritage. They compare her to the mothers of the 12 tribes of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, to Rachel and to Leah. They, they compare her, her to Tamar, who's the direct descendant from Judah, 
of this line that would continue forward. And so they recognize the significance. We hear these beautiful prophetic voices through these townspeople that reach forward into the future. And they don't finalize all the genealogical miracles quite yet, right? We know there are a few coming, but they marvelously prophesy and connect Ruth to the person of David and point forward to a future fame for Bethlehem, for Bethlehem Ephrathah. You think about that prophecy in Micah chapter 5, O you Bethlehem, a Messiah who's in the future, right? And indeed, in verses 13 forward, wonder of wonders, Naomi receives her male heir, little Obed, right? Little Obed. Because of Ruth the Moabite, Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 3 tells us that Ruth the Moabite is from a line that previously could not enter the assembly of Yahweh to the 10th generation. It says, even forever. So Ruth, the one-time Moabite, now incorporated into the people of God, whose faith, whose initiative, whose submission, whose self-sacrifice, whose hope, contributed there in verse 11 of chapter 4 to building the whole house of Israel. Her initiative that contributed to David, and of course, as we know, contributed to Christ. Yes, Ruth, who receives a greater and more unexpected honor than we could imagine. For her insecurity and her emptiness, God's loyal love provides security and fullness. Ruth, now in the line of David, now in the line of Jesus. What a story, my friends. What a story, right? Journeying by faith in God's loyal love. There are ways in which this is, this is a parable, if you will, for all of us. There are ways in which we see that God, Yahweh God, loves all who would call on him like this. It's the privileged opportunity of him blessing all families of the earth through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Ruth, through the seed of David, through the line of Christ. Have you, I'll ask you first, have you been blessed by Christ this way? Christ descended from this woman, Ruth. Christ born in a manger in Bethlehem. Christ, the bread of life. Christ, our true kinsman redeemer. Christ who redeemed us from the devastating predicament of our sin before that holy God. Christ who was God's divine provision who was the one who paid the penalty for our sin before God. Christ who now permits us to make a daring petition, to come to him in faith, to repent of our sin, to accept his redemptive gift on our behalf, a gift that we absolutely could not claim for ourselves because according to God's determinative purpose, we can join the covenant community. We can be those who are protected under the wings of God's loyal love. And so I I do ask you this morning, if you're not a person who's made that decision to embrace the covenant community alongside other believers here, I, I challenge you to consider that possibility this morning. 
And then for those of us who are believers here today, those of us who have, who have accepted the, the, the lineage, the heritage of faith from Ruth through Christ, what is strengthening your faith moving forward, my brothers and sisters? What, what is God's loyal love prompting in your faith today? How should we continue? What, what about God's loyal love urges us onward? God's ways are mysterious. I'll give you that. They have been in my life. I, I wouldn't predict many outcomes of my life. And yet, his providence is a smiling, delightful goodness for us. God's love has already rescued those of us who are Christians. He's, he's rescued us as destitute, as hopeless, as helpless. As we said at the beginning... Faith in God's loyal love prompts Godward initiative, humble submission, redemptive self-sacrifice, and hopeful hearts. Now, I'm going to just take a minute, so don't, don't get jittery with me. And let's just think that through for one second and a few brief statements, okay? First, for Christians, faith prompts Godward initiative. For you this year, faith should prompt Godward initiative. Like Israel and Ruth, this means that we should continually delight more and more in our exclusive lineage in the chosen king, the one appointed by God for us, the one who was Jesus Christ made flesh, who was one with whom we have the privilege of walking faithfully, of walking Godwardly, of living as his disciples. So Godward initiative. And secondly, Faith prompts humble submission. God's mysterious providence includes your daily decisions and mine. God's providence gives us the opportunity to praise him because he, we, we don't see the end of the story from here, but now we see the end of the story for Ruth, and we realize that he has accounted for us, that he has given us a role to play in all of his purposes. He gives us the privilege then to live with consistent purpose, to live as those who are submitted to him in humility. So consider that with me as well. And then thirdly, faith prompts redemptive self-sacrifice. You realize that some sacrifices are not redemptive. We can make sacrifices that are ultimately not aligned well with God's purposes. You know that. We need to live sacrificially and redemptively. We need to share truth and life on God's terms in his loyal love with people around us. We need to lay down our lives for him, for his purposes, for his ends. I can promise you, you won't regret it. And then finally, faith prompts a hopeful heart. God lifts up our eyes out of our own bitterness, out of our own mired circumstances. He he gives dignity to our existences. He challenges us, and I challenge you, challenge my own heart. Beware of jaded short-sightedness. Beware of bitter pettiness. Allow the Lord to produce in your heart a winsome excitement and a wholesome expectation for whatever he has in store for you as you move forward. Because you can never predict the twists and turns 
of the wonderful, intentional, loyal love and providence of God. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, bow, I trust, in submission before you. I trust in reverence for your person, your name, your covenant-keeping reality. I pray that this season will cause us to reflect on the abundance of grace that you've bestowed on us in Christ and the fact that we have the opportunity to live forward with purpose and hope. So we praise you for his name, his person, in his name we also pray. Amen.